fly me to the moon. Welcome to a universe of stories. I hope you all have your spacesuits ready because today we'll be traveling at the speed of thought with Solar System Space Ambassador Janet Ivey. Janet creates and facilitates children's educational live performances, TV, and online programming. With over 25 years in children's entertainment and education, Janet has captivated Nashville and beyond with her work. She's received 12 regional Emmys and five Gracie Allen Awards for her children's series that airs on public television stations nationwide. Janet is also the Buzz Aldrin Share Science Ambassador. Part artist, part scientist, Janet believes that art and science deserve to be taught side by side in concert with one another. Today we have her on the phone with your favorite neighborhood reading advisor, Rebecca Melvin. That's me! <laughs> Let's listen to them talk about all things space and get totally far out. Hello and welcome to another episode of A Universe of Stories. Today we're going to be talking about outer space and the planets with our solar system ambassador, Janet Ivey. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you for having me. So I must ask you, what is a space ambassador? So a solar system space ambassador, it's actually, there's a grand kind of network of us that are all across the country and the world. You register with JPL out in California, and you basically sort of take a solar system pledge that you will do your best to share as many facts and in many places as you possibly can about our wonderful solar system and the many facets of space. And so there's everything that we get nearly weekly or monthly telecons and these great kind of scientists, and they give us all the materials that we can be equipped with to go out and share with our neighbors, our libraries, our rotary clubs, wherever we may be. So it's a great honor. I have an official badge and everything that declares me a solar system ambassador for JPL and NASA. So it's just a super way to connect with the community and to bring down a lot of this amazing science that NASA is doing and kind of really, in many ways, give it a kind of voice and share it with the community in ways that maybe they wouldn't normally connect with it, but here we are to share it with them. So can you describe what a regular day for you would be? For example, uh, many days start out with, hi, I'm going to go over to an elementary school and present my show about the solar system. And then I might come back home, have a telecon with Explore Mars. I am, just as of yesterday, the press release went out. I am currently, or just been elected, the president of Explore Mars. And what we're going to try to do with that organization is to increase our outreach and education initiatives, especially with something called the Mars Ambassador Program. So in a month, we're going to unveil that at the conference that's going to be held at the National Sciences Academy in Washington, D.C. So then it's like usually, all right, now let me do a little research and uh, social media. The last couple of weeks were great. I got to push out a lot of the things about the first ever picture of a black hole uh, from all the Event Horizon telescopes. And then usually it's connecting with kids again. I get emails from kids from around the world that either need help with a science project or a space project or have a space question. And so my great privilege is to be able to connect them like, oh, you know what? 
you're doing a thing about Mars habitats. Let me connect you with my good friend that runs Mars City Design. She could probably help you with that. So a lot of times if people reach out, if I don't know the answer, I usually know someone in the space biz that might be able to help. I've been able to connect kids with astronauts and things like that. So for me, that's another great privilege. So any given day, I am sharing something scientific usually doing a performance either at a school or a performing arts center and then doing lots of communication, either social media or email, just encouraging kids to stand in their inherent scientific magnificence. (laughs) That sounds fantastic. So what is your favorite part of your job? I know you've talked a lot about the different things that you do. My favorite part of my job as Janet from Janet's Planet really has to be when I see a kid get excited. All of a sudden, that lightning bulb moment where a kid connects with science or space or exploration in a way they never thought possible before. I'll tell you one of my favorite memories. It's all about making sure that this generation and the next take us into those places where we will become a society and a species that lives on the moon or Mars and really captivate our audience right now to go, yes, this is possible. And think about it, even if some of us stay earthbound entirely, whatever we discover planning for living on the moon or Mars, all of that great innovation can only benefit planet Earth. But my favorite moment from Inspiring a Kid happened a few years back, and I've had multiple occasions for these sorts of things. I was speaking on a Women in Space panel in Toronto, and it was mostly girls in the audience, so we were really kind of encouraging females to follow the path of science. And I happened to say, smart is the most beautiful, awesome thing that you can be. And I had a 14-year-old girl named Papa Sweeney from India come up to me, and she goes, Madam, I feel like a supermodel today. It's like, I am smart, so therefore I know that I am beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> And and so I still am in touch with her. We were able to write several recommendation letters for her. She's got an internship with NASA this summer. So for me, my greatest moment of being Janet from Janet's Planet happened to be making sure this next generation is inspired, connecting with those students, and then being able to somehow put them in positions to also get to where they want to go. There was uh, another great story was a couple of years ago down in Houston at a four-day hands-on science festival and last like one of the last kids to show up his name was Amadeus so like that was already intriguing (laughs) and we were making lunar landers and I mean he was making some I mean it was beyond just like hey we're keeping our astronauts safe in our little cup this is truly a work of art I had taken so many pictures that by that time my phone battery is completely dead. And so I begged upon the mom, please, oh, please send me this. I must, I must have a picture of this, this engineering masterpiece. Well, sure enough, she sent me the picture. And then shortly the next day, she called. She goes, do you happen to do birthday parties? And I said, I am so sorry. If I were in the Houston area, I certainly would. I said, but I'm headed back to Nashville. And she goes, well, Bob and Dance's birthday is next Tuesday. And I was like, well, let's see what we can do. She then later shared with me that she was a veteran and she had done several tours in Afghanistan and she was up early to go to the VA. She had some health concerns. And I thought, you know what? When is Amadeus' birthday again? (laughs) I went quick to work. I had two astronauts 
give Amadeus a birthday call. The then president of Explore Mars gave him a call all the way from the Netherlands. A major general from the Air Force encouraging him to, like, he probably needed to become a pilot if he really wanted to become an astronaut. And then they all followed up with little gifts in the mail to Amadeus for his birthday. So for me, when I can connect kids with what they really want to do with the people that have done it and know so very much about it, that is my best and most favorite thing about my job. That's wonderful. Hearing you talk about it, I can feel that you mean it. I sense that it's very meaningful for you and you find so much enjoyment from it. So I think that's fantastic. Now, have you always loved outer space? Did you always know that you wanted to work for NASA? You know, here's the funny thing. It all traces back to a fifth grade teacher named Miss Ernestine Yarborough. And she was only in her second year of teaching. This is 1977-78. On a Friday night, this other cool chick in Bell Bottoms named Miss Carolyn Davis. Miss Ernestine and Miss Carolyn set up a telescope on a Friday night and invited any family members from their class or the school if they wanted to come by and look at their telescopes. And it was a star party. And I will tell you that just having... Those two ladies know, like, there's this constellation or there's the Seven Sisters. I thought they were the grooviest, most cool ladies I'd ever seen. In the spring of my fifth grade year, Miss Ernestine assigned us all a planet in the solar system that we needed to do a report on. My planet was Saturn. And I have to tell you that through that process, I think my love of space was indelibly birthed. And anything that I do education-wise, I hold her up as the metric for best teacher ever. At that time, there was a way for her to take our spelling words, wrap it into our science lesson, wrap it into our writing uh, lesson. And so we could write a story and we could take any flight of fancy as long as our science was correct and our spelling words were all spelled correctly. And to me, that was also a great entree into science communication. So for everything that I have done as far as space and science began in my fifth grade classroom with Ms. Ernestine Yarbrough. So that was my moment of engagement with outer space. Wonderful. So speaking of space, and this is going to be a fun question for you to answer. How big is space? And I'm putting quotations around that. (laughs) (laughs) So big. So super big. It is unbelievably huge by orders and orders of magnitude and orders of magnitude are really kind of like powers of 10. And so it really is immeasurable. And I think that's what makes me so very interested in science and space is that math we can quantify. We know, we do, we solve the problem, we solve the equation, we have some numeric value for that. But the great thing about space and science is that it's like our universe is constantly expanding. And when we think that 92% of what makes up our entire universe is made of dark matter and we don't yet even have a clue what that means or how do we explain that or how do we describe it, because there's still these big question marks, because what we know today can radically change tomorrow because of something that is discovered at midnight. And... So, yeah, how big is space? Super big, super, super, (laughs) super big, and incalculable, really, at this time. But the more that we discover, the discovery and the first picture being sent back from one of the black holes, from all of those event horizon telescopes, the day that they gathered all of that information, the event horizon telescopes located from around the globe all had to have good weather 
so that the pictures they were synchronized to take at the very same time as they began to shrink all of this major, major amounts of data down to terabytes and finally gigabytes and everything that they could be manageable. There were perfect days of weather in every one of those regions. So even that cosmic coincidence blows my mind. But the more that we learn about what's out there, the grander we understand what makes Earth possible and why this is such a precious little planet with all of the elements for life where we don't have to walk around in a spacesuit, where we have argon and nitrogen and oxygen and a protective bubble and magnetic shield and atmosphere and ionosphere around us. I mean, when we think of that, most other planets don't have it. When we go to Mars, it's an airless rock with a very thin atmosphere. Landing humans safely is going to be one of the most monumental engineering feats ever. Then surviving on Mars from radiation to all of the other potential hazards there. And we always have to be, until we terraform it, which could take a thousand years, we're going to, have to either be living underground, wearing always our astronaut suit. And sometimes I've heard people think that we all want to go to Mars see it, experience it, possibly live there. But living there constantly with an air suit and always wearing your life support around with you will be quite different from walking out the front door here on Earth, lying in the grass, playing with your puppies, and taking for granted we don't have to spend a couple of hours just to prepare to go outside. So with all those things in mind, everything that we do out there in our big, big grand universe of space and everything that we discover... All of that grandness just points back to there's where the good stuff is. All the things we love, all the sweet things that sometimes we could take for granted. Earth is pretty rad. And while there may be other planets in their habitable zone around their star, they are light years from us and we don't yet have the capabilities to get there, check that out, see if there are any other folks like us or other life forms. So we've been talking about space <laughs> and you've mentioned a lot of interesting things like our you know, solar system, the universe, galaxy, different planets and black holes. What does all this mean? Can you give us just a general idea of all those kind of words coming together, those terms? Well, I think there's so much to learn and understand about this cosmos that we live in. And every one of those things, the fact that how do planets form? What does that mean in how we came to be? How is it that we are in the perfect spot, tilted at 23 and a half degrees on our axis? Any tilted more forward toward the sun, it might be too hot. It would just be unbearable to live on planet Earth. Tilted any further away, we might literally be living in what would be considered a forever ice age. So the perfection of where Earth is positioned in, in our habitable zone with our star, which is just a medium-sized star, no offense, little son of ours, but <laughs> the more that we understand how all of these things, there's a giant black hole at the center of our solar system, the more that we understand how these things work, how these things from nebula, these little nurseries of stars that are constantly spewing out the material to make new stars, planets, and systems, again, Finding out all about out there informs us more and more about what's here, what we need to do to take care of this precious planet. 
And for me, learning even a few of those words, when we talk about stars just in the visible stars that we can see, we're already talking 200 million in crazy kind of terms of how many billions and millions of stars that are out there. And then we start talking about galaxies. We live in the Milky Way galaxy, but there's the Andromeda galaxy, and there's so many others. So again, and that's only in the part that we can see and have telescopes big enough to look at. So understanding and getting a good sense of some of the glossary words of space, A, will increase your knowledge about this crazy place in which we inhabit, but also gives you more and more information that you go, oh, maybe I want to know more about stars and the ones that go supernova or the ones that are just white dwarfs. Maybe I want to know more about planets and galaxies and that sort of thing. So I would encourage you guys, in fact, I may even send you an entire list of galactic glossary words and even a song that would include some of those words that you can have and sort of enjoy and maybe get a little more curious about. That's wonderful. So I know that it is the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing. Can you talk a little bit about that event did Neil Armstrong really land on the moon? How big oh. of an impact this had on the world? Well, the entire Apollo program, when we consider that NASA had already begun with Mercury and Gemini, and this was really the space race. Russia got the first cosmonaut into space on April 12, 1961. So by the time President John F. Kennedy gives his big speech in May of 1961, committing that the U.S. will get people on the moon by the end of this decade, it was a really poignant moment, but it was also a political moment. But it ended up, I believe, being really a human moment because it's like, I'll try to do my best approximation of Kennedy. Like, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. <laughs> and when we consider that, it was May of 1961, and then by July of 1969, Apollo 11 is launching from Kennedy Space Center on board command module pilot Michael Collins, Neil Armstrong, and Buzz Aldrin are there. Three and a half days later, they are nearing the surface of the moon. The sheer mass alone of the trajectory so that Michael Collins' lunar module would disconnect from the command module. He was encircling the moon and orbiting the moon while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are landing on its surface. From the fact that we have more computing power in our cell phones now than all of those computers that you saw that actually got them to the moon that day. So literally, they blast off on July 16th, and then on July 20th are nearing the surface. But Neil notices that the onboard computer is steering them dangerously close to a crater with potentially disastrous results. If they land too hard down in the regolith of the moon, and regolith is kind of like the moon is really, it's almost like a flower consistency. It's been pelted by asteroids and everything. So it's like the surface of the moon is kind of like not really sand. It's the best description of that regolith is powder. So you don't want to land too deeply into that or the lunar module may not be able to blast off to reconnect with the command module. So he seized control of the craft and mission control could do nothing but watch and wait. And with 20 seconds of fuel left, the craft touches down. He said, Houston, Tranquility Base here, the eagle has landed. And it would take hours later before he would exit out uh, that door and down that those steps and say those very famous words. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. 
then Buzz Aldrin would join him on the surface of the moon. They would spend several hours collecting ilmenite-rich rocks, ilmenite the form of titanium. And people always ask about the planting of the flag. Well, there's no air on the moon to prove that it's fake. However, what happened is they had actually sewn these kinds of monofilament, these long pieces of metal. They actually had sewn inside these stripes of the flag so that as they unfurled it or unrolled it, that it would still look as though it were waving in the wind because otherwise the American flag would just kind of lay there and droop. There's hardly any gravity. There's no wind. So that's not the image that you would want to portray. So I know that for certain they had actually sewn these little bits of metal through the stripes of the flag, and that's why it appears that it has that look of the wind blowing and everything. But I wasn't privileged enough to ever meet Neil Armstrong, but I have met Buzz Aldrin. And I will tell you for certain, those feet have walked on the moon. And even as they were sitting there waiting to connect with the command module and fly home, they had on their exit out to the lunar surface, there was a little bit of a pin that got knocked out. Imagine a little latch with a little hairpin thing straight into it. And they were sitting there waiting for mission control to solve the problem. And finally, their window for connecting with Michael was diminishing. So Buzz put a pin, like a ballpoint pin, into that latch, and they were able to blast off and uh, reconnect with the command module and safely return to Earth. So ingenuity and innovation will always be needed, and sometimes something simple as putting a ballpoint pin into this little pin and latch that needed it can be very helpful. But the significance is, is that no one had ever visited or landed or walked on another celestial body until July 20th, 1969. So on July 20th this year, think of it as National Space Exploration Day, but this is the day when humans walked on the moon, if you will, and that it was the first time that we had ever ventured out. Their plans are to use the moon as a future, kind of a training ground for future missions to Mars. And so that moment in time, that determination to go and be the first ones to do it is preparing us for someday being a species that lives not only on Earth, on the moon, maybe other planets like Mars or maybe another moon like Titan, it set the groundwork for us to be spacefaring as a species. And so it's important in so many ways that it's historically, but also it's always that moment was always looking toward the future of what kids today will surely see in their lifetime. Fantastic. So speaking about the 50th anniversary, what kinds of activities and events are going on right now to celebrate this? So you're going to see everything start to populate. And what I really want to say, I know the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama, will have their huge celebration on July 16th. And they're celebrating that because Marshall Space Flight Center was largely responsible for all of the launch vehicles, like the Saturn V, that lifted the Apollo mission off the Kennedy Space Center's launch pad. So they're going to celebrate the launch. And then you're going to probably have Kennedy Space Center, the Houston Space Center, any good science center around the country is probably going to have a week's worth of activities. So on July 16th, if you're able to go to one of the science centers and celebrate Apollo, uh, the Apollo 50th anniversary, or if you just want to do this from your house, think about this. Uh, the, the astronauts that morning had breakfast. 
Well, if you're going to launch to another celestial body, that sounds like a good idea. What they had for breakfast happened to be steak and eggs and orange juice. Now, I don't know if my stomach could handle steak and eggs and orange juice if I was about <laughs> to launch from a rocket. But yeah. the question remains, what would you eat as an astronaut if you're launching to another place in our solar system? So we're encouraging everybody to eat like an astronaut, take a picture of what you're going to eat on the morning of July 16th, get your parents to upload that on some social media account, because we want to know, if you're going to eat like an astronaut, what do you eat? Maybe some of you guys are tofu uh, folks, maybe it's a banana and some yogurt, like I had oatmeal for breakfast this morning, that would seem kind of very calming to my stomach. Again, I'm thinking about the nerves that I might have as I'm blasting off, so I might be a little conservative on that. And then on July 17th, we're going to encourage you to go out, attend a star party, or create your own star party in your backyard. Put out a blanket, a picnic, uh, have some refreshments, lean back, look up at the stars, see if you can name some of the constellations, see if you can, you know, see what the moon is doing. Like, you can go over the phases of the moon, can you see the face? of anybody there or a bunny rabbit, and then consider that 12, 12 humans have walked on the moon, and maybe someday, perhaps, you're looking up there now, maybe you'll be able to take your family there. Maybe you'll be able to buy a ticket to the moon as easily as you'll buy a ticket to go to Disneyland. Think about that one. Then on the 18th, we're going to encourage you to read a book about being an astronaut. We've got an entire list, and you can go to any great library uh, in the country. We're encouraging you to do that. Their whole This whole summer is about a universal story, so I'm pretty sure that every librarian is going to know a great book to recommend to you about going to space. There is Becoming a Spacewalker by astronaut Jerry Ross. He was NASA's, like, I think, frequent flyer. He flew seven space shuttle missions. There is one about Mae Jemison, the first African-American astronaut called Mae Among the Stars. Uh, there's so many great books. There's Floating in Space. It's like there's one called I Want to Be an Astronaut. There's the first moon landing, eight days gone. Again, I encourage you to read a book about what it means to be a space traveler. And then on July 19th, build your own lunar landers. Uh, we're going to have directions on my Janet's Planet website about how to do that. And again, you get to decide what that lunar lander is going to look like, where you would land, maybe pick out your exact landing spot. You don't want to land too deep in one of the craters because the moon's super cratered. And then on July 20th, you could dress up as your favorite astronaut and have a space party. And then you could tell all of your grown-ups in your life about all of the space facts that you have learned over the course of the week, kind of from launch to landing. And maybe you could even time to sit down with your family and watch the videos about that first ever moon landing. And this is and if you want to write a letter to an astronaut, let me tell you where you can send them. You send them to the astronaut office and then just put NASA Johnson Space Center, Houston, Texas, seven seven zero five eight. Again, that's astronaut office, NASA at Johnson Space Center, Houston, Texas, seven seven zero five eight and write a letter to an astronaut saying thank you for inspiring us about exploration. So there's some great ways that you can celebrate Apollo 50th uh, with your family and with your local library, and we hope that you'll just, again, watch, watch the trajectory of your love of space and science that week. I have to ask you this. 
and I'm sure our listeners are also wondering themselves, is the moon made of cheese? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If it is, it's made of Gouda. Now, I don't know. (laughs) It's it's not made of cheese, although it is fun. I tell you a fun thing to do is take a piece of Swiss cheese outside when there's a full moon and see if you can position any of the holes around the craters. That's kind of a fun exercise to do. Uh, from Based on what the scientists thought, the astronauts who have actually walked on the moon, they encountered no cheese, but uh, did say that it was a little bit strange being out there uh, and uh, realizing they were 250,000 miles away from home. So, well, I'm sure there's a great joke about a moon and cheese or the cow jumped over the moon. <laughs> they saw no cows jumping over the moon either. But, uh, yeah, it's like uh, take that piece of Swiss cheese, go out and see if you can line it up with any of the craters. And what kind of cheese would you want the moon to be made of? Well, Gouda sounds really nice. Yeah, Gouda, it's like, it's Gouda, right? I know. Yes, the moon is Gouda. I don't know. But I, <laughs> like, cheddar, cheddar could, could be fine, but... As of yet, no. Now, I have to ask you a question. When you look up at a full moon, what do you see? Do you see a bunny rabbit? Do you see a man's face? Do so, you? That's funny because I was going to ask you about the man on the moon, which I think we've all kind of heard about that at one point in our lives. When you look up, you kind of almost see a man's face. You do, and it's interesting. It's like if, if depending on where it is in its orbit, or you know, in its uh, if it's a full moon, sometimes it almost looks like a little bit of like say like an early Athenian Olympic, uh, you know, athlete because you'll see almost like like as if he's wearing some like crown of leaves around his head, and you'll see kind of his nose and the outline of his chin and lips. Other times, it will look like somebody is holding a rabbit up in the air. Like, it's got his, like, oh, here's this toy rabbit that this guy is right. holding. Other times, it looks a bit, like, depending, again, where how it's turned and everything uh, and rotated, it will look almost like a Native American chief. Oh. So that's kind of fun to see. Uh, definitely, you can sometimes see a rabbit. And recently, when I was asking kids what did they see, somebody said they saw Olaf. and and so he went up and kind of drew the circles out and so if you there is a place there's two dark craters and then he kind of drew a lost nose so yeah um it did look a little bit like Olaf so again I encourage you you can print off a a picture of the full moon and go hmm what do I see and you (laughs) might find all manner of different animals wonderful So, because we are a library, and we love books here, do you have a favorite children's book, or can you recommend a book to our listeners? Oh, gosh, you know what? It's like, huh. (laughs) And we're talking about a favorite Facebook, huh? Sure, why not? Let me, hmm. I tell you, okay, for a middle reader, I tell you my favorite thing right now, and it's a great, it's like, find the middle reader copy of Scott Kelly's book, Endurance. And what I love about this book is that it tells the story of him not actually being that great of a student, but always loving to explore. And it was his big brother that basically uh, said, hey, if, you're, if we are going to both make it to be astronauts, you had better get serious about studying. And so, it, but it, it took him a while to really get the hang of what it meant to actually sit in a chair and study until he had mastered 
what he needed to master to become an astronaut. But his tale of being in space for a year is fantastic. So for any middle grade uh, readers out there, Endurance by Scott Kelly is actually sitting on my desk right now. And uh, goodness, there's also called Mastronaut. It's a uh, uh, it's by Scott Kelly's brother, Mark Kelly. He says it's based on a partially true story. Uh, then there's another great one that I think is perfect for some summer called If You Decide to Go to the Moon by Faith McNulty is a great one. And then if you're looking for a, a really fantastic pop-up book, this one's by National Geographic. It's called To the Moon and Back, My Apollo 11 Adventure by Buzz Aldrin and Marianne Dyson. So those are some of my favorites this summer. Aww. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. I know that I've learned a lot about the planets and the solar system and about all the upcoming events that are going to be about Apollo 11, the anniversary, which is a huge deal. And I just want to say thank you so much for talking with us. We really appreciate it, and I've enjoyed it so much. Uh, and thank you. Anytime that I can share my love and passion, I mean, I could... I could sit here and regale you with stories about Mercury and Venus and someday get this. It's like we might even be able to live in the, and, and create cloud cities. We can never live on the surface because Venus is just too hot. But the clouds around Venus do kind of like create this atmosphere where it might be possible to have cloud cities. So there's so many fantastic, it, they theorize that it might even rain diamonds on Neptune because of the way carbon forms in the clouds and the gravity is so intense. So that isn't proven to be true yet, but we need a spacecraft to fly by there and see if we could pick up a handful of Neptune diamonds. Think right. about it, you could be the universe's first Neptune diamond collector. Wow. So we, live, we live in a fantastic solar system, and I'll leave you with this. So... Let your mind revolve around this thought. The universe is always expanding. Let your mind do the same. And that's the view from Janet's Planet. Well, kids, there you have it. I hope you all are as excited about space as I am. For more information, subscribe to Janet's Planet Official on YouTube or send her a message at Janet at Janet'sPlanet.com. And remember, kids, if you really want to be an astronaut, the hardest thing about it is... You have to plan it.